You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? We are, uh, we're so glad that you're here. So I guess that you heard, I turned 49 on Friday. And um, thank you. I think you were a little more excited about it than I was. uh, Because basically 49 is the sale price for 50. And um, birthdays, birthdays are a little strange as you get older because you're just not that excited that it keeps coming around. When you're little, like when you're a little kid, you're, you're counting the days down and it just can't get here fast enough. And then you get to a certain age and you're like, didn't we just do this? And uh, so, and people have asked me, I've been getting this question all weekend about how does it feel to be 49. So 49, if you're not aware, feels like uh, lower back pain, a little bit of heartburn and a splash of inflammation. That's basically how that feels. And, uh, but I'll tell you what's different. I remember this. My son is 13, but when I remember this so vividly, when he turned eight, he got these uh, emails or, or he got like little postcards or whatever in the mail from uh, uh, Jeffrey from Toys R Us mailed him something. He got a thing from Nintendo wishing him a happy birthday and GameStop all wished him a happy birthday. This week, I got emails from the urgent care I go to the Publix Pharmacy, and I also got a shout-out from a local funeral home, which that one I thought was a little odd. It was like, we're eagerly awaiting for you to become our customer. And uh, so that was, yeah. So, but I, <laughs> I've had this. I, the, I, was in, um, I, I was standing in front of the mirror a couple days ago, and I was just looking, and I, I said, wow, they're getting so much bigger. And, uh, and, and my wife was like, I know, the kids are growing up so fast. And I said, well, yeah, they are, but I was talking about the hair that's growing out of my ears. And, um, so, and so, just so you know, uh, for those of you that are younger, at 49, I've, I can do almost everything I did at 29. The problem is, is that when I do things at 49 that I did at 29, there's a price to be paid the next day which is why my kids, my kids asked me the other day, I was taking some vitamins. They're like, dad, did you take your green vitamins? And uh, I'm like, what? I don't take any vitamin that's green. And I'm like, oh no, guys, that's Advil. And, uh, and the answer is yes, I did take that. And, uh, but because you do things and you don't realize. So this is a while back, I was fixing the blinds in my daughter Mia's room. Now Mia's 15 now, but um, so I was, it's really a two person job. So I'm on one side of the, because uh, the, the blinds have this thing and it just, they got kind of, you had to re-roll them or whatever. Anyway, it's a long story, but so you got to pop them into this little receptacle and then you got to hook them in on the other side. So like I said, it's really a two-person job, but I was, you know, one ladder. And so I put them in, I get the blinds in the one side and I just didn't want, and I, I was worried that if I got down off the ladder, then moved the ladder, that the thing was going to fall. So I was holding on to it. And I said, what I'm going to do is, is that I'm just going to do this hop on the ladder, which, by the way, turns out is really frowned upon in the ladder community. And uh, so I did a, a couple of those, and then I just went a little too far, and I landed flat on my back after a loud scream that my daughter called kind of girly. 
And, uh, and, and, you know, but it was, it was, it was fine. The next day I couldn't walk, but it was fine. And, uh, but I ran, my wife ran in, she heard the scream and, uh, you know, and, and I, I try to be kind of a manly man. And, uh, and so not that I'm saying I do it well, I'm saying I try. And, uh, so I am flat on my back with the wind knocked out of me. I have a ladder on top of me and my wife starts screaming and I'm like, I'm good, I'm good. It's all good. And, and, and this is just not the picture I'm trying to portray as, as she walks in. And, and, and I think this is part of the problem that we have in general is that all of us are trying to present ourselves in the best possible light to the world. This is why when you are out with your friends, you take 20 pictures before you post one online. You find the one where you look good and you don't care if your friend's eyes are closed or they're looking away or they went to the bathroom while you're taking the picture. I look good in this one. This is what we're going with. And, and the problem is, and this is, we kind of do this in every area of life. And when things are going well, we present ourselves like, you know, these just, just, I just make good decisions. That's what we're talking about. And then when things aren't going well, we just blame the devil. And because uh, as Christians, that's what we do. We just blame the devil for everything. And I am amazed. I'm telling you, you hang out in church long enough, you'll be amazed at the stuff that the devil's going to get blamed for. Uh, I mean, I've had people, um, you know, the de- I'm in debt because of the devil. Like, dude, you did- Satan didn't take you to Best Buy. You drove yourself. And, uh, and so, and Satan didn't make you buy that car. And, uh, well, I'm going to ease up on that because... You get to the car. A lot of people that work for him are at car dealerships. And um, you know why? Because any place that charges an origination fee is not serving humanity. All right? I remember when I bought my, my last car. So I'm going back now like seven years and, um, or so. And, uh, and they, they, they started telling me about the origination fee at the end. And, uh, and, and I'm like, well, explain that to me. And they said, well, that's just basically it's where... It's, 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 it's a fee that we charge that's from where the car originates to get it to our dealership. And I said, you know, that sounds almost exactly like the cost of doing business. And, uh, and they're like, well, everybody pays the origination fee. I said, hey, no problem. I said, just understand that um, I have a reception fee that I charge. And uh, every car that I buy, I charge a reception fee. And that is the fee that was, is for me to go from my house to here. And, uh, and then to receive the vehicle in question, I charged that. And, and I said, how much is your origination fee? They said 600 bucks. I said, that's how much my reception fee is. So interesting. And they're like, well, yeah, that's a funny joke. And I'm like, well, it's not really a joke because I'm not buying your car. And uh, then they bring out, you know, they're like, oh, I got to talk to the manager. I always wonder if it's an actual manager or just the guy that stocks the sodas. And they're like, come on, just tell me you're a manager. Yeah, I'm a manager. You want a Pepsi? <laughs> no, I don't drink Pepsi. Pepsi's of the devil. And, uh, and so anyway... And then, you can quote me on that, by the way. I stand by that statement. And uh, anyway, and then, but then they finally took it off because, you know, that's just, that's just what happens. But listen, this is just part of it. It's just human nature, right? We want to look younger. We want to look trimmer. We want to feel smarter. We want to seem like we're more successful than we actually are. And the Bible has a word for that, pride. And here's the thing that wise people know. Wise people know what they can do And what are the things that are totally outside of their control? And the sooner that we understand that, the better off that we're going to be. Because, listen, and this is why I bring all this up. Because in in this section of the Gospel of Matthew where we are, Jesus is going to confront the disciples with three different situations that are just, they are totally out of their depth. They really aren't sure what to do in this situation. And, And by the way, Jesus isn't doing that to mock them. 
He's certainly not doing it to taunt them. Instead, he's showing his disciples how much they need him. And that's important for his disciples then, and it's certainly important for his disciples now. We need to be well aware of how much we need God in our lives. And if we don't, here's what's going to happen. If we don't recognize that, we will start making decisions without asking for counsel. We'll start moving forward without prayer and seeking for God's wisdom from the scriptures. And most importantly, we will have a view of ourselves that is totally warped because we think we're wiser, stronger, and more capable than we actually are. But if we will stay in step with what God wants us to do in our lives, we will accomplish more and have more joy, have greater provision, and see God work in our lives to a greater degree than we thought possible. So we're going to start in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 17, where we left off, and we're going to start in verse 14, and here's what we read. And when they had had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon. It came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. If you pause there and give me your attention, first of three things that I want to tell you in our time together, the first is this, that spiritual problems require spiritual solutions. Now, if you, let me set the scene for you. If you were with us last time, you know that Jesus and Peter, James, and John, three of his disciples, were at the top of this mountain. We mentioned last time it was Mount Hermon. And then they saw Jesus transfigured. That is, they saw a glimpse of Jesus' glory. Then they come down from the mountain. They see a multitude is gathered. And the scene that we just read, that a father is trying to get help for his son, and the other disciples that were there couldn't help. Now, I want you to think this through for a minute, and I think this is important for us to note. Is it reasonable for anyone to expect his disciples to be able to cast out the, the, the unclean spirit that was tormenting this boy? Now, I personally believe so, because back in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the disciples, he empowers them to cast out Uh, unclean spirits and heal diseases. In fact, you'll see this in Matthew chapter 10. It says, and when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. So while they were given power, they couldn't help this boy. Why? Jesus says it's because of their unbelief. They simply weren't spiritually prepared for the challenge that was before them. Now, This idea of unbelief and having faith is an important topic, and it gets very confused in Christian circles. And this is where, when we talk about faith, and we talk about the power of faith, it's important for us to understand and not confuse what it is that we're discussing. The power is never in us, and the power is not in the power of faith. That is, we don't have faith in faith. Instead, the power is always the object of what we put our faith in. Whatever we put our faith in, if it 
is powerful is, is the, the issue. Because once again, not all faith is created equal. The object of our faith is what determines whether if our faith makes sense or not. And I'll explain it this way. So a couple of years ago, I got invited to a wedding uh, here at the church. It was very nice. And um, they had rented, they, they did the, the wedding outside. So they had rented these nice, uh, these, these white chairs uh, in front of the church. And so I went to sit down after the wedding and I was with my kids. And, and so I went to sit down and I don't know if you've ever had a moment. They're like, you know, those kind of flimsy plastic chairs. And then they put like a thing over them to make them seem like, they're really nice, but underneath them, you know, like they're those thin wire. And so I went to sit down on this chair and I thought, man, I don't know if this chair can do what I want it to do. What I want it to do is hold me up. And I'm worried because once again, it's just, it's not. And so I'm sitting down and, you know, you kind of, and I looked around and everyone that I saw was shorter than me and slimmer than me. And I thought, well, that's not really helping much. And so I, you know, you go to sit down. And so I was a little nervous about putting my full weight on it. And um, you ever done that? And then you just, you kind of sit, but you're not really sitting. So it's almost like a squat that just, you're just there. And so then I see this guy, he walks over and he's twice my size. And he goes to sit down. You ever notice some people when they sit down, they almost like throw themselves back. And it's like, first of all, who taught you how to sit? Like, they're just like, oh, here we go. And they just kind of do one of these things. And uh, this guy does that to the chair. And dude, shock of all shocks. That thing was like Atlas holding up the world. And, uh, and so, and I was, and I was like, oh, I was so relieved. And I just like, whoo, you know, I just let it go. And here's, and listen, that's what faith is. That's what faith is. It's putting all your weight on something because you believe that it can hold you because you believe the object can do the thing that it said. When the object of my faith is worthy of my faith, I can fully trust it. This is the key. Faith isn't just this idea. Faith is ultimately trust. So why does Jesus mention, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. Now, this is important, and this is, I want to unlock this teaching of Jesus for you because it, it gets tossed around. And I remember as a young Christian, I read this, and I remember standing in front of um, a mountain. And I mean, it, it was the local dump, but it's the only mountains we have. And I was like, here we go, you're moving. And I told it, and it didn't move. And uh, it probably didn't move because it was full of garbage. But um, and I, and now, let me explain the teaching. Now, I know some of you have done this but you're just not admitting it. I'm admitting it for you. So you're welcome. Anyway, so Herod the Great. Herod the Great was ruling the area of Judea uh, around the time uh, before uh, Jesus's birth and then uh, for a short while um, after his birth. Now, uh, Herod the Great built 11 fortresses during his reign. He was an incredible builder. He was also a very short, maniacal, completely paranoid man. We'll talk about that some other time. But one of the uh, fortresses that he built is called Herodium. In fact, it, it survives to this day. This is a picture of Herodium. And what he did is he basically, uh, and you see these, and if you ever come to Israel with us, you, we'll, we'll go here and then we'll go to another place that he built um, uh, that's called uh, Masada. 
uh, which is uh, towards the Dead Sea. But you see, he, he has basically hewn out this mountain and turned it into a fortress. And that's what, that's what happens at Masada too. At Masada, they basically took this cliff and they hewn the whole thing out and turned it into a fortress. It's an incredible place. But uh, Herodium is built like a mountain. Essentially, he turned the mountain into a fortress. Um, uh, Herod was buried at, at Herodium and it was built in this little town south of Jerusalem, about five miles south of Jerusalem that you may have heard of called Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is a city that is rich in biblical history. So quickly, Jacob buried his wife, Rachel, in Bethlehem. Ruth gleaned the fields of Boaz in Bethlehem. Samuel anointed David to be king of Israel in Bethlehem. And it is in the shadow of Herodium in Bethlehem where Jesus was born. Now, Herod built this place because he believed that Cleopatra, queen of Egypt, was going to invade Israel. And so he built... um, Herodium as one of these fortress palaces where he could flee um, if should Israel be uh, attacked. So Jesus, when Jesus starts talking about moving a mountain, this isn't an abstract idea. They've seen it. They saw a, a ruler who hewned out a mountain and turned it into a fortress. They understood that. Jesus is saying, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move a mountain too. The other thing that's important for us to note is that why does Jesus pick a mustard seed? I mean, why doesn't he say, he's talking about something small. Why not dirt or dust or sand? And that's because dirt or dust or sand doesn't grow. A mustard seed is incredibly small, but it'll grow into a tree that's 20 feet tall. And the point is that faith grows into something bigger when it's exercised. That's the thing that Jesus is saying. He's saying, do you see what the height of Power, money, and innovation can create. Well, the smallest amount of faith can topple all of that. And the tiniest stepping out in faith and obedience to God is more powerful than any human structure, any human power, or any human plan. And that seed of faith keeps growing. I hear Christians talk about this all the time. They're praying for a mustard seed of faith. Listen, if you're a Christian, you've already got that. The key is now it's time to take that mustard seed and grow it into a tree. And the way it grows into a tree is by you stepping out in faith, putting your full weight on who God is because you trust him. That's the only way that faith grows. Faith never grows when we're idle. It grows when we're actively trusting God to do something in our lives. And whatever area of your life is Uh, that we're talking about, whether it's your relationships or finances or career or your future or your family or your kids, faith only grows when we act on the truths of God that we know. So if you want to grow your faith, then grow in your understanding of God's truths, of what God wants you to do and what God has already said and what he's encouraging us to do or not to do. And put those things into practice and you'll be a giant in the faith. Listen, when you read through the New Testament and you see the people who are revered for their faith, they are always people who trusted God, put their full weight on God, and then acted on the truths of God that they knew. And if you want to be, listen, revered for your faith, you want to be a person of faith, it's, about having fa- it's not about having faith in faith or the power of faith in, as this ethereal thing. No, no, no. Instead, it's about putting your full weight on Jesus who can carry you. Well, Jesus goes on in verse 22, and it says this. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. 
and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And he said, yes. And when they had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? Whom, for whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes from their sons or from strangers? And Peter said to him, from strangers. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. And if you pause there and give me your attention, second thing that I want you to note if you're, uh, if you're a note taker, and that is that spiritual provision requires spiritual obedience. Now, this is not a tax, by the way, that was imposed by the Roman Empire. The temple tax is a tax that was commanded in the law of Moses for every person that was 20 years of age and older. It was for the maintenance of the tabernacle and later of the temple. And so the first question that we should be asking is, why is it that only Jesus and Peter have to pay the tax and not the other disciples? Well, I'm with most of the scholars who believe that it's because they were the only two who were over the age of 20. Most of the disciples that were, that, uh, were called in that era in Israel were usually very young, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. And so most of the disciples of Jesus were probably teenagers at best. Some say that the, the uh, disciple John was, could have been as young as 10 years old when he was called. Now, but then Jesus asks Peter, if the king's sons have to pay taxes uh, that their father, the king, institutes. And Peter says, no, that's the, the sons are exempt. It's kind of like how the White House and Congress exempt themselves from the laws that, that they pass. And I don't know if anything just warms your heart more about the government than when you find that out, that they exempt. It just, it doesn't make you want to be an anarchist at all. Um, and so, now, when Peter, Jesus tells Peter to cast a hook, and catch a fish, and sure enough, they catch one, or Peter catches one, and the exact amount that they needed is uh, what they need to pay the temple tax. Now, by the way, this is the only miracle that Jesus does in relation to money. And that's significant because most of the miracles that we pray for are usually in relation to money. So some of you will get that on the way home. And uh, now, there's a couple of things that are important to note, I, I think, as we talk about this. First, uh, Jesus tells Peter to do something that is within his normal gifting. Peter was a fisherman, so Jesus tells Peter to go fishing. The second thing that's important to note is that Peter had to be involved in the miracle. Jesus didn't command the fish to jump out of the water and land into um, you know, his jacket pocket. That's not how it worked. Instead, uh, Peter had to be engaged. And this is important to note because a lot of times we are praying for God to provide for us, but then we just kind of sit on our hands waiting for God to provide. And I've, seen, I've had this conversation many times, especially with young guys, and they're like, you know, pastor, pray for me. I'm just praying, but, you know, God just, I need God to give me some money. And, and I just say, hey, I will. But just FYI, when, when you pray for money, God usually answers in the form of a job. And, and they're like, what? I don't get it. I'm like, well, you will soon. And uh, so now, <laughs> but there are these moments where God blesses beyond what we could have done on our own. And it's usually after we've been obedient. Now, I've said this 
uh, over and over again, if you've been at Calvary for any length of time, that if you want God to show up in your financial world, you need to invite him into your financial world. This is why when we talk about tithing, that is giving the first 10% of your income back to him, right? Because we're not owners, according to the Bible. We're stewards of what God has provided for us. And when you take that first 10% and give it back to God, God has a way of blessing the 90% and making it go a lot further than the 100 by itself could go. The promise that we have is in this wonderful little book in the Old Testament called Malachi. It says this. You'll see it on the screen. It says, uh, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this, says the Lord. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be enough room to receive it. Listen, the longer you walk with God, here's what you're going to find, that God has resources that we know nothing of and he will bless us and wants to bless us if we'll trust him. And this is, and here's what we do sometimes is that um, we don't give. We want to be blessed, but we don't give. And some of us, we've heard the messages on giving and all that. And, but really what it comes down to is there's a lack of trust or a fear. It's the chair all over again. We're not willing to put all of our weight on it because we're not sure if God can be trusted. Now listen, this is not a message on giving. When I do a message on giving, trust me, you'll know. Uh, but this is a message really about trusting God in every area of your life. Because God wants to do things in your life that are totally amazing and outside of anything that we could do on our own. Some of you know this story, but uh, I was telling someone this recently. When we first started Calvary, um, we started meeting in a home, in a living room, and then we, we decided we were going to start Sunday services and we were going to meet in this hotel. And so we didn't need a big sound system. We needed like, this little sound system. And I found one at the church that I served at that was sending us out. I had gone in this closet and I had found this little sound system that they didn't even know was there. And so I just said, hey, could I borrow it? Uh, and they're like, yeah, take it as long as you want. And so now, after three weeks, they called me and they said, hey, we need you to bring the sound system back. And I'm like, what sound system are you talking about? You know, and, uh, and they're like, we need the sound system back. And I'm like, dude, you didn't even know you had the sound system until I found it for you. And, uh, and they're like, well, we're, whatever, it's very important to us. And uh, anyway, and then I thought some things that weren't Christian, and I was like, okay, fine. And so, and then I had to bring it back. So it was Sunday, and I had to bring it back. And I protested, and I didn't bring it back Monday because that was my protest. So I brought it back on Tuesday. And, uh, and I had no idea what we were going to do on Sunday. And so now, um, and I'm sitting in my office. I was running a college at the time. And uh, so I'm sitting in my office, and Tuesday goes by, and Wednesday goes by, and Thursday goes by, and uh, Thursday afternoon, I get this phone call from a friend of mine who's a pastor of a church uh, down in South Miami, down off Bird Road. And, um, and he says, hey, Pastor Bob, these, uh, these four big boxes just arrived uh, in our auditorium, and I don't know what they are. And I'm like, I don't know. I didn't order anything. And he goes, well, they have your name on it. Could you come, could you come pick them up? Okay, so let me tell you a little bit of info that you need to know. About six months before that conversation that I had, that guy calls me. I got invited to speak at this men's conference. Uh, and it was me and this other guy, this, uh, the other pastor from California. Uh, we were the speakers. And so he and I were having lunch. And he says, hey, I heard that you're going to be starting a church um, in the Miami area. And I said, yeah. And, uh, and so he's like, oh, that's cool. This and that tells me, you know, where you're going to start. This and that. We have this little conversation. And that's it. Well, that guy goes back to California speaks to a friend of his, unbeknownst to me, and says, um, hey, I met this guy named Bob. He's starting a church in Florida, and the guy that he was talking to owned an, uh, an AV company. 
Well, for whatever reason, God puts it in this guy's heart that one day, this is like six months later, he says, I bet you that guy, Bob, probably needs a sound system for his church and doesn't call anybody. He just finds the nearest address that he had, which is where this men's conference took place at this church. So he just mails a sound system to this Uh, to this church. And that's where I get a phone call that says, hey, there's a sound system that got mailed to us. I don't know this guy. I've never met him. And, uh, but I showed up that day and a brand new sound system was waiting for us two days after I had given the other one uh, back. This guy's never visited our church, although I wrote him a super nice letter thanking him for that. And we still have that sound system, by the way. The, the, someone on the staff uh, was like, hey, I'm going to throw this out. (laughs) I'm throwing you out before I throw out that sound system. So, check yourself. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> that might be the first time I've ever said check yourself uh, in my life. And so, <laughs> but listen, this guy was walking by faith. And it was, it, it was helping us walk by faith. And I'm telling you, I love this story. And, and once again, I've, I've shared this in the past. But this was, I had, been a, I had been a senior pastor of a church for three weeks. And I will never forget this moment because God was showing me that he was all over this and that he's got us. And listen, I've got, uh, after 22 years, I've got hundreds of stories like this. And some of them I share with you and some of them are so personal, they're impossible for me to share. And, and you know, um, here's the thing that's amazing to me. And I, I've, I've thought about this so much over the years. Um, when I got the call to return that sound system, those boxes were already in the mail to me. And um, when I was upset at these guys for asking for their sound system back, those boxes were already on the way to me. God was already making a way. And you know what? You get a little older and hopefully a little wiser. And you know what I realized? That it was God's will for them to call me. And I don't, I don't doubt it that they just woke up one day and was like, we have to have it back. What, why? I don't know, but we got to that. God put it in their heart to say, we have to have that sound system back because if not, I would not have known that God was the one who was leading us, providing for us, and directing us as we started Calvary. I'm telling you this, that if you'll trust God with your finances, you know what's going to happen? He's going to provide the fish with the coin in it, and he's going to show up in a thousand other ways as you trust him. Well, look at what happens. This is a good place to clap, by the way. Um, <laughs> Oh, wow. So spontaneous. Wow. I'm so moved by that. That's amazing. All right. Wow. Appreciate you guys being so responsive. So <laughs> I love you guys. I do. And I appreciate you guys like that I mess with you a little bit. I do appreciate that. That's another good moment to clap, but you missed it. So that, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> hey, he's enjoying it. That's really the important thing. He's, he's having a good time. All right. Here's where we're going to go. Chapter 18, verse 1. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. And if you pause there and give me your attention, last thing I want to tell you, and that is that spiritual wisdom requires spiritual humility. One of the things that you're going to find when you read through the Gospels is that this conversation about who is the greatest 
comes up over and over again. This is an ongoing conversation that the disciples were having amongst themselves. And that is, which one of us is the most awesome? And, and by the way, sometimes you think, when they think who is the greatest in the kingdom, it, it's not like them saying, of all the Old Testament heroes, I mean, who would win in a fight? You know, Elijah the prophet or David? That's not what they're saying. You know, if Solomon and Moses were on jeopardy, who would win? That's not what they're saying. They're saying, we know we're already better than those guys. We're just trying to figure out between the 12 of us, who is the most awesome? And they are so idiotic. And, and uh, it is amazing to me that Jesus is so kind and doesn't smack them all and just like wake up. But he's so kind and he uses this as a teaching moment. And he tells them, uh, hey, hey, you know, who do you think is the greatest? Jesus, just like honest opinion out of the 12 of us, who's the best? You know, and it's just like... Um, it's like a friend of mine when his kids, he has four boys, and he asks them, Dad, which, do you, do you, which of us do you love the most? And he's like, I dislike you all equally. Um, that's why those kids have emotional problems. And uh, <laughs> so, but here's what happens. Jesus says, look, you aren't even getting into the kingdom if you don't become like a little child. And the greatest in the kingdom is the person who humbles himself like a child. And what does that mean? Listen, kids are many wonderful things, but among them is that kids are simple. And, and you've known that. You know there's no subtext with kids. It's not like, it's like, hi. I'm like, what did that mean? You know, like you don't have that with kids. Kids just say what they think. They just tell the truth. Kids are also helpless, right? They are, they, they, kids are born not being able to do anything. And so they're born with a natural dependence on their parents. I remember when my daughter Mia was really little. She was about 18 months old. She's 15 now. But when she was uh, about a year and a half old, my wife went to the grocery store and I was, uh, I was watching her and I said, hey, let's go wash the car together. But she was very excited about that. And I mean, it's soap, bubbles, and, uh, and, and water. I mean, you know, what could possibly go wrong? And so, and by the way, there's a picture of Mia from that day. Um, super cute. And um, you can see that she's got the little spray bottle uh, in, in, in her hand. And so while we're washing the car, now this is before, you know how now the recycling bins are huge, but remember when they were just like these little, the little bins that were open? And so, um, we, so we're washing the car. She walks over to the recycling bin and opens a bottle of water that's just about empty and starts drinking it. And I'm like, Mia, stop. That's gross. And, uh, and, and so then um, I'm like, come on, let's keep washing the car so we can wash the car. A few minutes later, Mia goes back to the recycling bin and she starts drinking this can of Coke that has like four drops left in it. And I'm like, Mia, you're too young for soda. And plus that stuff is old, that's disgusting. So we go back to washing the car and then my wife gets home with the groceries and Mia says hi to her mom, grabs another bottle from the bin and tries to drink it. And I'm like, here, she's been doing this for the last half hour. And, uh, and then my wife... Um, you know, just, um, she starts talking slowly because she's talking to a moron. Uh, she's like, okay, Bob, she's thirsty. Did you offer her anything to drink? Well, I mean, short answer, no. And uh, she's like, what's the long answer, genius? And, uh, and so then she takes... Mia, by the hand, she's like, come on, mama, let's get you something to drink. And then, and then I, was, I was outside washing the car, just accepting my role as worst dad in America for the day. 
because I couldn't figure out what my daughter needed because her drinking scraps just wasn't enough of a clue for me. And so, (laughs) but the thing is, there's no subtext with kids. Like, uh, she's not getting a bottle out of the recycling bin to teach me a lesson or send me some kind of hidden message, right? Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's like what spouses do to each other. I'm like, I'm doing this just to show you, you know? And, uh, but listen, but what it was is that she was totally dependent on me and I missed it. Here's the thing, that's, that's the thing that Jesus is saying. We spend our whole lives trying to get away from the two things that Jesus says we need to become. We want to speak in subtext. We want to be deep and mysterious. We want to be completely independent and not need anyone. And Jesus is saying, yeah, neither of those two things is going to work. You've got to come to God and tell the truth. That you're messed up, you don't have it all together, and that you need him. And Jesus says, and if you'll do that, that's the beginning of greatness. You see, communion is the place where we are reminded that humility is the beginning of knowing God. When we se- what we celebrate as communion is just one part of the Passover meal that's uh, celebrated uh, every year. It's celebrated with unleavened bread. It's bread that hasn't risen. And the book of Exodus teaches us that the, the reason people had to use unleavened bread in the Passover is because they didn't have time for the bread to rise when they were leaving Egypt in haste. Now, the rabbis teach us there's a secondary reason. Because we all, by nature, want to puff ourselves up and make ourselves seem like we're more than we are. We want it to seem like we have everything under control and that we're self-sufficient. But communion reminds us of who we really are. The unleavened bread reminds us that we are broken people who need a Savior. We're people who don't have it all together, and that's okay. God is still working on me and God is still working on you and God is still working on us and communion is our reminder that he's going to complete that which he started. So I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward and they're going to hand out the communion elements and as they do, I'm going to invite you to hold on to them and we're going to partake of of, uh, communion together as Pastor George leads us.
1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the cup together. And Lord, we want to thank you that you don't leave us as we are. But instead, Lord, when we can come to you as a child, dependent on you, truthfully acknowledging that we need you, you can transform us. You can transform our families and our homes, our community and the world. And it begins with one human life surrendering to you. So we pray, God, that you would do that very work in this place, in every heart that's here. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.